In that time, there's just a few professional drivers, 1954, 1953. So to hear this kind of things for me, having lunch with this guy in that moment in England was very, very unforgettable moments, of course, because all, all the, the work that, I, that I've been making uh, took meaning, you know, it was very important. Hi there, everybody. Welcome to Horsepower Heritage. My name is Maurice Merrick, and greetings to all of you listening from places like Milton, Vermont, Trumbull, Connecticut, Bradford, Ontario, Canada, Morgantown, West Virginia, Carcassonne, France, Madrid, Spain, Alice Springs, Australia, and Devon, England, just to name a few. It's good to know you guys are listening all over the globe. Thanks for being here, and don't forget to follow, rate, and share the show, and leave me a quick review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. Well, today my guest is a guy named Danilo Coto, and he's the founder of a company called Pacto Helmets. That's P-A-C-T-O. Pacto makes exacting reproductions of period racing helmets, the kind worn by legends like Juan Manuel Fangio, Sterling Moss, and Jim Clark. And every helmet is made by Danilo's own hand. It all started with his passion for vintage motorcycles. After many years of hard work, Pacto helmets are now worn all over the world by drivers in vintage events like the Milamilia. So if you're a lover of the golden age of racing, you're going to enjoy this one. The full story is coming up right after this. Today's episode of Horsepower Heritage is sponsored by Model Citizen Diecast. And if you like scale model cars, they've got a special deal for my listeners. Whether you're looking for race cars or street cars, they've got something you'll like in itty-bitty 164th scale all the way up to the ginormous 1/8 scale masterpieces from the Amalgam Collection. You can see it all at ModelCitizenDieCast.com, and when you use the promo code HERITAGE at checkout, you'll get 10% off your order. Limitations apply. Model Citizen Diecast, because your inner child still wants to play with cars. Danilo, thank you so much for being with me today. I'm really excited to talk to you because I first saw a Pacto helmet on the back of a C-Type Jaguar at a car show a number of years ago. And I thought to myself, that is an amazing vintage helmet. And the owner of the car said, as a matter of fact, it's not vintage, but it's very authentic. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much uh, for inviting me to, to your podcast. I'm very happy to, to talk about my, my passion about helmets. And yes, I, I, I've been trying for years to make a, a piece that you can wear and feel it and smell it exactly as the, as the old days, you know. It's, um, you, can, you can find many products in the market right now, but I think I put a lot of, a lot of details on my products about uh, buckles, type of leather, vinyls, colors, anything I can, I can try to make it as soon as, as, as original ones. Yeah. Right. So the helmets are amazing, like I said, and the attention to detail that you put into your products is very impressive, but that didn't happen overnight. Let's talk about why this is interesting to you in the first place. I understand that you've always been a motorcycle guy and you enjoy history, of course, and historic uh, motorsport. So let's talk about your background a little bit. Yeah, uh, I, I had a Ford 55 when I was in college. I drove this car for 25 years. 
after that, I bought my first bike. It was a German bike. I couldn't finish this bike, but this bike was the start with the real connection of vintage motoring. So I started buying parts and more bikes. And it was very difficult because those bikes were in very, very bad conditions. In that time, only just a few Harley Davidson, vintage Harley Davidson, were driving correctly in that time. So I decided to start rebuilding the first uh, not Harley Davidson bike in, in, in my country. So I started with a club. I was the, the founder of the vintage Costa Rica motorcycle club. And I enjoyed it very much. I, we made a group. Uh, I have some invitations from, from other countries to visit, for example, Germany in that time because I was very focusing in vintage German motorcycles. So that's that's a way that my first connection with vintage stuff. After that, I bought the first bike and the guy uh, who sold the bike had a, a vintage German helmet. So this was my first connection with, with the vintage helmets. So I saw the helmet. I, I have never, ever been uh, see a, a vintage helmet in my life. So I... I was impressed how it was made, and, and I, I was thinking, wow, it would be very cool to, to drive my bike with this kind of, of stuff, you know, because it's not easy to find in other places. So I started collecting uh, vintage helmets for years. It was about 25 years ago. This was my first collection with vintage helmets in that time, yeah. And by the way, was that bike a Zundop? Yeah, that bike was the Zundop KS601, very, very bike. We, we were, Costa Rica was a very important country for vintage motorcycles. So soon the PNSUs, uh, Horex, and many other German bikes, because the quality, you know, the reliability of these bikes are amazing. For example, NSU, NSU was pre-war, was maybe the most important motorcycle manufacturer in Europe. And Costa Rica was uh, the main dealer in America. Argentina and Costa Rica, even U.S. importing a little less than Costa Rican bikes. So we had a, a very good dealer for NSU. So even now you can see some small bikes riding in the country, the famous Quickly's and the Fox and the Supermark, Supermax. Those bikes are, are amazing uh, bikes, good quality, fast, and very well constructions. So as a young man, you got into these vintage motorcycles. And of course, you wanted your own vintage helmet, yeah. but they weren't around. Yeah, absolutely. In my, in my first visit, it was my first trip to Europe. In my first visit, I was invited from the NSU Consul Club. Consul is one of the models from NSU, the 500. And I had an invitation from the NSU Consul, and, and I was there for my first time in Europe. So when I was there, I, I talked to the guy who invited me that will be cool to find a guy who, who can sell me uh, a vintage helmet. So I bought my, my first helmet there in Germany. And I was very, very happy. And that's a, that's a first connection with, uh, with the vintage helmets. And I started collecting. It was 25 years ago. And after maybe 15 years, I decided, why not to make a helmet? It would be very cool for me to, to ride one of my vintage bikes with, with a kind of vintage helmet. It took me three years, this idea to to be done, to have my helmet, my own helmet in my hands. It was very, very difficult because the materials uh, was very hard to find here in Costa Rica. The cork, the rivets, 
the rubber parts, the style of the stitches on the in the leather it was very hard to find people who can make one helmet for me you know because it was just an idea if you go to the shop and asking for these kind of things and the shops doesn't like to to make just one piece for you you know because it's very expensive because they have to took a lot of time but i was very lucky to find the right people that can help me and and of course many of of latin culture are not very ready or not very focused on make a very perfect pieces you know they make for example belts maybe some some stitches are not very straight so i have to explain to these people that you have to make it perfect always yes so i know what you're saying in latin america a certain amount of imperfection is it's acceptable it's that nature of the handmade item absolutely and so it's just a cultural difference. Yeah, and my market will be very exclusive. If they pay for this kind of, of items, they will expect to have a, a very, very good quality details of your product. So that's why I was very focused on, on make it uh, not perfect, but very well made, you know, with, with perfection as, as, as much as we can, you know. Right. In other words, it doesn't, you don't want it to look machine made yeah, or yeah. mass produced, but you want to have a very high level of precision yeah. in a handmade product. Absolutely. But now, Danilo, at that point, you're not even thinking about producing these to sell. You're just looking to get one for yourself. Yes. In that time, I was just very happy to, to make one helmet for me and write one of my bikes with wearing my helmet yeah when i decide to make my my first helmet i had to to imagine everything i had to imagine how to put my rubber because the rubber that this helmet were made or used are very different than the new the rubber trims for example so i have to imagine every piece of the helmet because it's very different when you see a vintage helmet on your hands and it's very different to imagine how to make it I was wondering every day how to put my rivet, the machine that you can use to put the rivet, because there are thousands of different of machines that can put a rivet, handmade, press, air press. I don't know. It's, it's hard to imagine this, this kind of thing. So, so, for example, the rivets. I remember when I bought my first rivet, I was very frustrated I didn't know how to order or how to look for rivets, solid rivets or, or semi-solid or tubular semi. Now I know, but in that time, I didn't know. So I bought many, many, many different kinds of rivets. And after I decide, well, maybe these rivets can work. But now I have to imagine the machine to put these rivets. And one day I decide to email a guy who make vintage Tonka cars. I don't know if you if you remember these 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 toys. You know, I I have a problem. I need to put a rivet. I explain him, but the main concern is because the rivet needs to to be very into the helmet. So I need a reach to reach these these rivets with a long arm. He understood uh, what I'm looking for. So he made by his hand 
a, a special tool for me. This very, very simple tool is the tool that I always use to make the, the helmets. Even now, 11 years after, is the same tool. And after that, of course, uh, the problems uh, continue with me uh, about the rubber, about the cork, about how to, to find the leather because the leather is very special. It's not a regular leather. All the racing helmets were made in pig leather because the hair of the pig is bigger. So the air flows easily. So I have to find the right leather. So I have to import leather. But it was very difficult, of course, because the colors, because the textures, the softness or the stiffness of the leather. And finally, I joined all the items and made my first helmet for me. Yeah. Can we talk about how you produced the shell for the first time? Yeah, the shell, I was very lucky because there's only helmet manufacturers in whole Central America that was here in Costa Rica. In the 19, the late 60s, the guys from AGV Italy made a, a, a deal with the Costa Rican people and they start to produce AGV helmets here in Costa Rica. But the factory is still in 10 years, 11 years ago. So I was very lucky because I talked with the owner. The company was very, very small. And I asked him, can you make a shell for me? And he says, mm, uh, we don't like to make uh, different shells that we made because it's, it's licensed and, and it's our, our market, you know. But how many helmets you want? And I said, just one. And I, oh, just one is very, is very difficult because it will be very hard to make just one shell for you. So I start uh, trying to be friendly with him and explain him my passion that, that I want one helmet that is very different than the, than the new helmets because the bikes and the vintage, etc. So finally, he was very nice. He was an Italian guy. And we made the first helmet. Of course, the problems again, because the weight of the helmet, because the type of the fiber glass of the helmet that I was looking for, even the kind of shapes, because when you see a vintage helmet, it's not as as smooth as the as the new one. The new ones are very smooth, very it's like a kind of glass, you know. But the vintage is more rough, it's not very smooth. So I tried to make the paint process like the old days. So finally, we made the first shell and painted. Yeah, it was very good. The shells are fiberglass, right? Fiberglass, yeah. You can find many different fiberglasses eh, because the weight of the fiber is... Eh, even the, the holes or the threads the, of the fiberglass are different. So, so you have to, to use the, the right one because some, some shells needs a little flexible it's not very, very stiff. It need to, to be open. There's a very famous pictures of Wolfgang von Trips before, of course, his crash when he is pulling out his, his racing helmet to, to put it on. So the shell needs to be flexible. I've seen that picture. Great photo. Oh, really? Yeah, yes. absolutely. Love it. <laughs> I use a lot this picture because it's the right way to put it on. Can we talk a little bit about the actual history of these helmets in their yeah. time period? So just so listeners understand, what are the time periods we're talking about in terms of the vintage helmets that you produce? Okay, I'm very focused in pre-war in, in the 50s and maybe late 60s. Is, this is my, my range. The, the first company in Europe to make racing helmets was a James Gross company. James Gross made many, many different sports items like uh, boxing products, like uh, fishing products, athletic, basketball, football, 
many, many sports, but Jay, James Gross was one of the biggest company in the pre-war in the 30s. So he started making the famous helmets for the TT in Isle of Man for racing motorcycles. Of course, these helmets became famous after Lawrence de Arabia had a big crash in his very special motorcycle, Rough Superior. Of course, he was a military guy and very well known. And of course, his bike was very, very special. The most fast and expensive bike that you can buy in the whole world. So after T.E. Lawrence crashed his rough superior and was killed, the motorcycle community in England started to think more about safety and began yeah. to look for helmets to use, right? Yeah. And in that time, the crash helmets were very, very small. It was not made of uh, fiberglass. Fiberglass starts after the, the mid-50s. In that time, uh, they decided to make the, the helmets by shellac material. It was a very hard material to handle because you get dirty immediately because it was difficult because you have to put a lot of uh, different layers of this shellac material. It's very sticky material and, and were made companies by Gross, of, of course, by Cromwell. Cromwell was a very important company in pre-war. And uh, also Herbert Johnson started to sell in some special uh, helmets made by other other companies. Herbert Johnson was a, a store, a hatter store where you can buy products, but not a company name, but was very, very famous. Maybe the most famous name in F1 early days uh, helmet. And by the way, shellac, a lot of people don't know this, but it's a natural material it comes from insects. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a very hard process. Uh, even now, if you want to make a shellac uh, shell, it's very, very hard because you, you put the, the hot iron over the shellac to to make the smoother surfaces it's a headache it's absolutely hard to make but it's because many of that commercial helmets in the pre-war were covered with leather to make it smoother and, and more beautiful because the, the the finish of the shellac is is very hard it's not very beautiful what this makes me think of is the uh, pith helmet Pith. What do you mean, pith? Uh, so, por ejemplo, los soldados de, de Inglaterra. Yeah. So in, in India? Yeah, that's probably shellac. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. There's very little safety in racing pre-war. Yeah. And, and yeah. only after the war, you know, 1950 or so, are they beginning to really think about safety. Yeah, the... The first helmet was presented to, to FIA in 1949 to make the first F1 competition in 1950 in England. And the company who made this first helmet was the company named Ever Oak, but not sell by Ever Oak, sell by Herbert Johnson. Most of the people, not all, but most of the people start wearing these Herbert Johnson helmets with shellac in that time. After 1952, the helmet was mandatory. But in these years, 1950 and 1951, there, there is a very famous video when Juan Manuel Fangio is telling this situation that, that some guy is laughing when an F1 guy racing with helmet. And because he was laughing and joking, you know, that guy is scared of crashing and that's why he's wearing helmets. These kind of things are now very funny because you are more than 150 miles per hour in that time and, and you are not wearing a helmet. It's amazing. And no, no belts and safety belts. And it's amazing. I did a, a podcast episode recently about Jackie mm -hmm. Stewart. FIA, it's not as if they didn't care. 
they had to make decisions based on many factors. So for example, the helmets needed to be protective, but they also needed to be light enough to wear for an extended period. So they had that balance they had to strike. Yeah. eh, It's not easy to think about because some guys can drive or race for a long period wearing a heavy helmet and some others not. That's why... eh, And of course, for example, if you can, for the Bahamas circuit, for example, that was very hot in that moment, but Germany, for example, was very cold. So that's why you can see on pictures that some helmets are full of holes. I don't know if you ever seen in the 50s helmets with full of holes because they need more air and your head stop burning because it's too hot in that circuits in Florida or Nassau. Or in Nassau. Nassau, yeah. Nassau is one of the hottest, yeah, of course. When I think of these helmets, I think of Fangio in the Alfa Romeo Grand Prix cars. And yeah. he's, he's wearing a helmet, but he's wearing also a polo shirt and yeah. trousers. Absolutely, yeah. He's not even wearing a jumpsuit, so yeah. gloves, helmet, and sometimes he's not wearing goggles. Yeah, it's amazing. I, I, I now we can understand how how they race that cars, and even with forty three years old racing these kind of cars, and and you are not athletic guy, but you are very strong, of course. But you, you don't look like athletic guy than skinny guys that you can see on F one nowadays. You know. Yes, Fangio was not a physically impressive person, yeah. but his skill was unbelievable. Absolutely. Absolutely. And also how calm he was behind the wheel. He looks like he was out for a Sunday drive. He always cool. He always eh, tranquilo. Muy tranquilo. Muy tranquilo, yeah. sí. There's a, a, a little a small detail that I know because the son of the company who made the helmets told me. I received an email from the son of the real person who made that first helmet for racing F1. His name is Bill Vero. Are you talking about the son of the guy who started Everoak? Yeah, Everoak. Yeah. Okay. Uh, seven or eight years ago, I received an email from a guy who who wants to meet me. And he was he invited me to his home because he's he was very interesting to, in, to talk with me about helmets. I didn't know that he was the son of the owner of Everoak in the 50s. And he was the guy who modeled for first time the F1 helmet. This guy was based in the Polo helmet and he makes some changes and make this special pick visor helmet from the polo helmet. So I had I said, yes, of course, I would love to meet you. I will visit you in London. It will be fantastic to be with you and talk about helmets. And so I, I visit him with my wife. So it was very uh, romantic moment. It was very passion moment because he is a gentleman, of course, uh, like the old days. He was a driver, professional driver. His father was a professional driver. And we start to having lunch in his home and he started to telling about the, the real story. I have never, ever heard the real story about helmets because it's, you cannot read from the website or from the books. It's not, the story is not there. The story is with him. He told me his father was a very, like a fighter boxing enthusiast. He was a very strong guy. So when you're trying to model these uh, shellac shells, you have to to model with an iron that you put in the fire and, and you heat it mm-hmm. and you start modeling. But this is very heavy because it's made of iron, of course. And and he, he was telling me that his father was very strong with big arms 
And he remember in the in the early 50s, his father making, can you imagine the owner of the biggest company in the world making one helmet for a driver by the owner of the company, by his hand? It's amazing. He was very close in that time with the FIA people. And so they decided to make this helmet together. So we started talking about the machines, the process, the people, the, the leathers. And of course, we talk about the company who sells the helmet. And I one of the questions that I made was why, why the helmet was sold by Herbert Johnson and not by Everhook? Because my father was a very low-profile guy. This is an amazing question. Now, everybody wants to, to be very famous with your name. And his father was a low-profile guy. Uh, Herbert Johnson has a very special store in Bond Street. In that time, Bond Street was very famous for, for different kind of hats, the gentleman hats. But in this store, in the store of Herbert Johnson, there was a living room for selling helmets. For example, if you were Juan Manuel Fangio or Rodriguez from Mexico or the Italians, for example. Uh, Alfonso uh, de Portago. Alfonso de Portago. If you want to buy a helmet, Alfonso de Portago goes to Herbert Johnson, the store in Bond Street, and go to a special room with a bottle of champagne and with the owner of Herbert Johnson. And they sell the helmet in that way, just for him. Because remember that in that, in that time, there's just a few professional drivers in that time, 1954, 1953. So to hear this kind of things for me, having lunch with this guy in that moment in England was very, very unforgettable moments, of course, because all, all the, the work that, I, that I've been making uh, took meaning, you know, it was very important in... He asked me, for example, he asked me, what do you think when you are making a helmet? And I answered him, eh, I, I, I always think that I'm, I am part of your company. I'm your employee. And I'm thinking this helmet will be worn by a professional driver. And we were laughing and we were very connected eh, each other in that moment because he's very passionate. Some some guys that used to work for companies are not very passionate, you know, just make the works for, for living. But this guy is absolutely focused and passionate. And he's still making some helmets for friends and for particular people. And, and I was very happy because he ordered me some parts of the helmets that he cannot make nowadays in London. So I, I bought to his home visors and buckles and uh, rain visors and it was very funny. You can imagine that you can uh, sharing these items to the son of the real owner, or the people who invent these these helmets. Yeah, very very special moment for me. That's very exciting because that is as close as you can get. Absolutely, there's no other people in the world. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I love the idea of walking into Herbert Johnson, going to a salon in the back of the store and having a custom fitting, just like you would be buying a, a, a tailored suit. Yeah. 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 There was a special machines. I don't know if you ever seen these machines who measure your head. It's like a metallic hat that you can put your head in the metallics close. And, and after he took off and, and this copy your exactly your head shape. It's amazing. This because it's the same machine for, for, 
tailored the the hats. That was the the hatter was very important. Yeah. So the original F1 helmets post-war really were developed from a polo helmet. Yeah, absolutely. From a polo helmet. Yeah. Because Everoke was the, the polo helmet maker. Very interesting. Yeah. And it, and it makes sense. You look at these helmets and I, you know, immediately they look like polo helmets, but they have yeah. many different details. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 absolutely. The chin straps are different. The, the size is different. Um, the cork is different. Uh, many, many things. Yeah. By the way, just out of curiosity, is the cork sourced from Portugal? Yeah. Yeah. We import it from Portugal. I've been to a Quinta in Portugal that was on a cork orchard. Very interesting. So I've seen the, this was near Evora. Okay. So I've seen up close the process for harvesting cork off the tree. And, you know, Portugal produces something like 90% of the world's cork. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. It's amazing. It's very expensive also. I'm, I'm sure. So once you produced your first helmet and you were satisfied, you started to tell people about it, right? You started to get some interesting attention. Yeah. Uh, after I put my first picture of my helmet in my Facebook, I received an email from a company who sells motorcycle accessories for more than 100 years. That company is Lewis Leathers. Even is the, the oldest motorcycle accessories store in the world. So I received an email from this guy that he is very interesting to make an order from me for helmets for his for his store in London and for his store in Japan. So this guy is very unique guy. He's the owner of Louis Leathers that he can be very focused on details. Absolutely genius in this situation. So he asked me, can you can you make maybe three helmets for me? Because I want to check the helmets before make an order. There's something special, he told me. There's something special. I have three um, vintage labels from my company from the 50s that I want that you put in your helmets for me. And I said, yes, yes send me the, the, the labels. I will put on my helmets. Of course, the, the helmet, the, the, my name is, is, is not, um, not necessary to put, you know, only the, the label from England. So I make the helmets and sent it to London. He checked uh, some small changes and we ma- fortunately we we could make it the small changes so he put an order from 100 helmets 40 helmets for the london store and 60 helmets for the japan store and i was impressed because i in that time i only made one helmet for me and he sent me the payment in advance and and i was very i was very happy but i was very nervous also because uh, I don't know how to make 100 helmets. I don't have a shop. I don't have a, a people who can make this amount of, of products. And, and can you imagine each helmet uh, is made with 12 rivets and 100 helmets with 12 rivets each is a, it's a big amount of rivets, for example. So I decided to visit him in London and to meet him with my wife. And, and I hold his hand when I... When I meet him, I hold his hand and I said, I will send the orders. I don't know when, but I am very serious. And, and I promise that I will send you the orders to Japan and to London. And he said, don't worry. I trust in your passion. I trust in your 
work, and I am sure you will send the helmets. Doesn't matter the time, take your time, six months, eight months, a year, don't worry about that. So I was very happy in that moment. And we start a very nice friendship. He is absolutely my mentor. He explained me the market. The market is very, very hard to understand for a normal commercial people. It's different. It's, it's about history. It's about satisfaction. It's about passion. It's about, it's about to buy a helmet in the 50s. It's, it's, this is the way that I try to see my, my market. You know, I remember, for example, uh, when I was invited for a Triumph motorcycle meeting in, in England, I brought a helmet for a customer. And he started crying when he, when he opened the helmet. And he told me, you know, maybe in the last 25 years, I never, ever buy anything special for me. This is the most special thing that I ever buy in the last 25 years because it's exactly as the helmet that I bought 50 years ago. And this kind of things, you know, this move you to make this better and better and, and more satisfaction for me, the, the work that I make. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing rational or practical about this in a business sense. Yeah, absolutely. When you got home from London, what was your plan? Did you have one yet? You know, in that time, before this experience about the helmets, I, I used to work for a big company in Central America. For in, I'm an engineer. I work as an engineer. And for 10 years before, I was very focused in, in engineer. And my life changed very fast. And then I have money to make 100 helmets for a very unique market. And I didn't know nothing about this market and these people because they're very different people in this market. So I start, I start uh, making helmets and I fail with the helmets many times because when you put the rivets, the helmet are already painted. You, you not paint after rivets. You paint before rivets and put the rivets after. And if you fail putting the rivets, the whole helmet will will be damaged. So you have to make another one to replace it. So I have a big, big amount of, of uh, mistakes making the helmet. So I was very frustrated. Now I ever made more than 1,500 helmets in 11 years by my hand in my home. So it was very funny because the, my, my house is, is not big. So my house start, you can find helmets in everywhere in my house, in the living room, in the dinner area. It was very funny because I have some guests in my, in my house and, hey, what happened here? What are you making? Yeah, I'm making helmets. I have a big order for, for a England company. So the people can believe it is. It was, it was very funny. Yeah. Beautiful moments, uh, the passion, the, when you start a business is, is absolutely fantastic. Yeah, these emotions. That's wonderful. By the way, the rivets hold the suspension in, is that right? The rivets hold the suspension and the chin straps. So all of the internal parts are riveted to the shell. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Very good. I yeah. just want to make sure that people understand that part. And it makes sense when you say that the rivets are recessed, they're inside because uh -huh. you, you don't want the rivets rubbing on something. Yeah, no, no, no. The rivets are before the cork. 
How long did it take you to fulfill that first order of 100 helmets? About 10 months. Yeah. And I had to send the whole order, of course, one for Japan and one for England, but at the same time. Did he specify that he wanted different colors for the helmets? Or Yeah. The helmet for racing was made only in two colors. In the 1955 was the first jet helmet from Avia Kit Lewis Leathers. So they made only silver and white. So that's why we make only silver and white. Especially the same color, the same, everything the same. Yeah. So 10 months is actually not that long for 100 helmets. Hand-made. You think so? Oh, yes. I mean, no- normally I ask for four weeks, for a month, for one helmet. Yes. Is because you have uh, all the items together in the when you are starting a helmet, but the process is slow. But in the meantime, you have some problems with this and with that, and and that's why I ask for 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 weeks to make one helmet. Yeah, but w- when you are making more, it's more easily to make more. You know, it's faster. So ten months to fulfill an order of one hundred helmets, and what happens next? Yeah, after this, it was a big step in my career to make 100 helmets for England. And the people start knowing that these helmets were made by a guy in Costa Rica. And in that time, I wasn't connected with cars, only with motorcycles. You remember this helmet was was made for cars and motorcycles for racing in the late 50s. So people from uh, from different clubs in Italy, in Germany, or even solo person uh, make some orders because they saw uh, some helmets here, some helmets there. Ten years ago, the social media starting uh, very fast and the people start to connect it more in the world, you know, by pictures and by videos. So it was very help, help, helpful for me because the people start uh, following me in my brand. So I start to receive orders for custom helmets for different fans of Ferrari, of Lancia, or Alfa Romeo. They start making orders for custom logos and names and, and very unique stripes, something very simple. So I start to see this market more uh, focus, you know, because it's very hard for another company to make one helmet for one person. It's very expensive. It's very hard. But for me, it was very easy. What you mean to say is that other companies are set up for mass production, but you figured out a way to custom produce them. Absolutely. Yeah. And it was very funny because these people start asking for pictures when I make the helmet. Can you take a picture of you when you put the trim, the rubber trim, and when you put the rivets? It's very important for me to see how you make my helmet. Because the project is not only mine, it's, it's a project with this customer also. We make the helmet together. Because in the meantime of the process, the people change their mind. You know, I think that white is too white. I need more of white or more cream. And, and we can change the helmet. And, and we can, the people feel free to make this helmet together with a friend. I was very happy because I start to exchange many, many emails and, and phone calls and messages with the customer before finish the helmet. So it started to make a, like a friendship with the customer. It was very unique because I enjoyed this very much. And 
when I visit, uh, for example, Milimilia or Goodwood or any rally, and I meet the people with the helmet, they when when I saw him and he saw me, we start laughing and we are friends. This connection is very is very nice because the people can feel my passion and I can feel the passion from the customer. You know, this is the connection that people have with an artisan. Yeah. Yeah. That's what you've unlocked. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I love that. There are very few businesses that you can have that connection with your customer. Yeah. I enjoy it very much. Yeah. Of course, I receive uh, uh, some emails with very famous people. And I was in shock. I received a phone call from the from the girl who deal the image of a football players, very very famous football players. She told me, you know, my customer is very uh, is asking for a helmet from you. When I realized that this this guy is so famous, I I was in shock. Yeah, this this guy is really really important in the in the market. Yeah. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, very very cool. So let's talk about the jet helmet, your first helmet design. Yeah, the the jet helmets. This is the first jet helmet from Europe. The first jet helmet in the world was made in US by McCall and by Bell. But in Europe, the first jet helmet was made by Everoke and sell by different companies, by Les Leston, by Herbert Johnson, by Avia Kit, by the famous rally guy Paddy Hopkirk. This first jet helmet was made in 1958 and worn by motorcycle guys, f- professional enthusiasts, professional drivers, and by F1 guys. Like uh, maybe the most uh, important in F1 was Jack Brabham. You can see his pictures when he was the the world championship in 1959. He's wearing this Aero jet helmet, maybe sold by Les Leston. Also, Jim Clark worn this helmet in blue he customized the helmet in blue with the strap visors in in silver gray the helmet is made from big leather inside but you can adjust the suspension to high or more low the helmet this helmet is the earlier model without the press snaps for visor after 1961 or 62 the helmet starts press snap buttons for the visors but in this moment, the visor should be strapped here and hold by clips. That, by the way, this kind of things, I'm the only, I'm the only guy right now to make this correct period helmet with that details. This is the loop for the goggles or for the visor strap or for the rain visor. You can you can put here, you can hold here with this many of these accessories. And one particular thing is the helmet comes with double chin straps. You know, one is uh, with snap buttons, and then you close with the uh, with the buckle. The buckle is very very special. We made these buckles in Japan. That's why if you see the whole thing, the whole details, the helmet is exactly as a remake as the old days. It's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you very much. Do you find that? Sitting down and making a helmet is uh, a therapeutic. Yeah, yeah, of course. I disconnect absolutely my mind, and I am very relaxed, and and I'm thinking and I flow in thinking when I am making the helmet. Yeah, that's wonderful. It's great that it still makes you feel that way after all this yeah. time. Yeah, it's absolutely great that after eleven years, I feel the same passion. 
So Danilo, you've expanded your product line beyond simply helmets. There's some other interesting period pieces that you're now reproducing. Yeah, maybe six or seven years ago, people start asking me for more products like jackets and boots and special gloves and, of course, visors. And I said, well, I have these products in my mind, but I I didn't finish. If you have time, I can try to make uh, special uh, items for you. And he said, yeah, take your time. Don't worry about that. So I was focused, very focused in the correct period racing jacket for in the rain when when it's when these cars are open the people like sterling moss and jim clark start uh, wearing uh, these special jackets for raining made by dunlop you can see dunlop uh, brands in, in his jackets and these these jackets were made by oil cotton so oil cotton is not easy to find there's only a company very very old company in, in great britain in scotland sorry that can sell these these kind of fabrics that you can use. Of course, there's some other cotton, oil cotton that is not done very easily to to tailor, you know. But this this company in Scotland made these special fabrics. So one of my customers in Italy is also a tailor. So we start dealing. It would be nice to make a jacket in collaboration. We can buy these fabrics from Scotland and make this jacket in Italy. This guy was also my customer, but we starting to to be more and more more close. And I designed the jacket how they will look with the pockets and uh, the lower uh, collar neck, for example. Because when you are racing a car and your windshield is is very low, the wind is too much, so you have to to button your jacket in a very lower collar, for example. These special details. So we designed. Very close to the Sterling Moss and Jim Clark jacket that he wore in the 50s. So we are still making these, these jackets and we are very happy because when you put this kind of things, you see the difference. You know, there's nothing, nothing like this in the market. And a guy from Germany also asked me about why don't you make shoes? We cannot make, sho- make shoes in Germany because Adidas is protected the market that nobody can make a, a, a vintage shoe similar like Adidas shoe because Adidas has all the the permissions and the there's a word for this uh, the licensing or the license yeah the license for for this kind all the sports shoes in the pre-war were made very similar than the Adidas because you can make sports like athletic or boxing or or basketball or football with the same shoes. It's the same style made by Adidas. And for example, the driving shoes. So he asked me, why, why don't you should, you should make some, some shoes for me? So that's the way I start making these special driving boots and driving shoes exactly the same that they were in the, in the 60s, yes. At a certain point, Pacto's reputation had grown to the extent that you were contacted by the producers of Ford v. Ferrari. Yeah. I was impressed when I received this email because I don't know if it was a, a joke or it was serious email. They didn't have the the script really done. And he emailed me and he asked me, can I call you? I would love to call you and talk about the helmets that the guy who won Le Mans in 1962, what kind of helmet he wore in 1963 and 1964. Because in the first... Uh, in the early days of the process of the film, the story 
was different. The, the story changes. So the film focused in, in 1966 only the most of the time. But in the, in the early days, uh, when the film was in, in a script, we'll show you all the story about 1960, 61, 62, 63. And we were talking about the helmets and the colors and the shapes and the manufacturers and, and many, many, many details of the, of the race. And I was, I was very happy that these people contact me and, you know, I'm in Costa Rica. I'm just a fan of this. I love helmets. I love producing helmets, but, um, I was very happy that they count of my ideas and he called me and he took the time. And of course he made an order. That was the most important thing. Yeah. He ordered six helmets and, and jackets and, and shoes and gloves and, and many other things for the film. Yeah. In that time, the budget wasn't very big. Another funny thing, uh, after I put some pictures in my social media, Derek Hill, the son of Phil Hill, called me and he said, are you serious that the people from Hollywood contact you to make items for the movie? And I said, yes, I'm, I'm very happy. And he said, eh, you know, my father was Phil Hill and my father was very, very connected with with Le Mans in 1964. He won the 1962. Can you give me the contact with the producer? Because I would love to work with this movie because my father was one of the main persons in, in Le Mans in the early 60s. And I said, yes, of course, I will give you all the information of, of these people. And I connect Derek with the producers of the movie and he were working for months, maybe, I don't know, six months. Derek uh, Hill was working with him. And, and also many other sons of, of other famous drivers were in the movie. Yeah, When the film was launched in, in Costa Rica, all the vintage car club were invited to the uh, Sala film, to the cinema, and we saw the movie together. And, and when some part of the uh, shots, the helmets appeared, <laughs> we were very, very happy. Yeah. Absolutely. Danilo, on Instagram, people can find you at Pacto Store, P-A-C-T-O-S-T-O-R-E. Yeah. The website is pacto-store.com. Yes, that's my website. Yes. Okay, very good. I'm going to put links in my show notes so that Thank you. people can click on those and look at your product line and learn a little bit more about Pacto. But I mean, they're, they're beautiful products. And Thank you very much. You're very welcome. And they're so exciting. I, they, these little details mean all the difference. Danilo, I had fun today. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, absolutely. I enjoyed it very much. Good, good. I, I'm glad you did. Muchas gracias. Y okay. La pasé muy bien. La pasé muy bien. Gracias. Mucho gusto. Okay. <laughs> ciao, ciao. Adios. That's all for this episode of Horsepower Heritage. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to follow the podcast and help me spread the word by sharing the show with your friends. If you want to get in touch, Go to the website at horsepowerheritage.com, click on the contact button there, and that'll take you where you want to go. Until next time, I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening. 